0: I'm Aisha Taylor Kamara, and in this three part series, I'll be exploring the black pioneers in British radio broadcasting from the early 20th century. This is Yunnan, Boston introducing West Indians in Britain. Right through to the beginnings of the 21st. It tells the story of the often neglected voices of black Britain who served their communities. The, BBC, on the pirate radio stations like DBC and LWR. The you are, you are, you the in which inspired the creation of black-owned licensed radio stations like WNK and choice FM. Choice, choice FM and not just those who served the communities whose culture, tastes and interests were not being catered for by the mainstream but those who also serve the wider British public We often find that these voices are left out of the usual history books. When they are, we have to question why and look at who's telling the story. And not just who's telling the story, but who's dictating it too. Who's dictating what should be said and how these stories should be told? Told, 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 told. It is also not just the fact that these black broadcasters and voices on the radio are left out of the history books. It's also that their works weren't even recorded. Even when they were, we are told that because the audience they were talking to, or the amount of listeners to the show, was so small, that exploring this further is not worth it. The programmes are somewhat deemed insignificant. Or when we get told that these programmes were recorded, they were lost. So they say. Say, 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 say. So throughout this series, I've spoken to a number of people, including researchers, academics, and also some of those black pioneers who've helped make British radio broadcasting what it is today. In this episode, I speak to Professor Glyn Griffith, whose research examines Anglophone Caribbean literature in the context of post-colonial theory and criticism about Caribbean voices and the BBC Colonial Radio Service. Zakia McKenzie, a writer and PhD researcher exploring Black British journalism in the post-Second War period, about Caribbean voices and Caribbean writers. And Stephen Bourne, a cultural historian specialising in the Black presence in Britain, about Dr Harold Moody and the Colour Bar. Welcome to In Safe Hands, the Voices of Black Britain. This episode begins where we last left off. It's the 1940s and the BBC has just taken on a 35-year-old black woman called Una Marson. You may not have heard of her, but you should. Delia jarrett Macaulay has written all about her in her book.
1: Delia jarrett Macaulay has a wonderful book on uh, Unimarks, a, w- a wonderful biography, and Alison Donnell has also done quite a lot of work. I mean, Al- Alison Donnell's work is, is fascinating and and, and, and builds, I-, I think, wonderfully upon and beyond the sort of um, history that I did because she's been excavating a lot of the women writers that never made big names out of that programme other than somebody like Louise Bennett.
0: Siuna, who was born in rural Jamaica in 1905, was a pioneer whose plays, poems and journalism thrived. A journalist, a feminist, a writer, a poet, a playwright, an activist, a remarkable woman ahead of her time. time.
1: Well, Yuna Marson began as a journalist in in, in Jamaica, and there was a a Miss Jamaica who won the competition in in Jamaica. And part of her trip, part of her prize was this trip to to London. And and Marson, working for a newspaper in in, in Kingston, followed her to London as a chaperone and so on. And she was such a formidable personality that, and of course, this is a pocket history, uh, she was noticed by the BBC
0: She helped transform Caribbean writing into a business. Her contribution to Caribbean writing and black women's literature shouldn't be missed.
2: Writing, it never was like a really big thing until maybe the 50s, 40s, 50s. So before then, you did have writers, but and this is pre-independence as well. So a lot of the writers in this period were... There were some of them that were writing with kind of a colonial outset because these were who would get published. It was the the white population in the Caribbean or the Creoles, right? Or so-called Creoles, right? So that's what would get published. That would be the idea. I suppose the things I read are like the nature stuff when they were describing the birds, you know, the, the different locations in the countries and stuff. Um, but you start to get like real novels with a Caribbean voice. You don't, you don't really get those until we see Carl in the West Indies or, you know, with Una Marsden and Henry Swansea. Until then... It wasn't really a business, so you might have had writers writing it. I think we probably always had writers writing, but they weren't published. So we don't know, you know, we don't know them or don't know those works until we get to calling the West Indies.
0: 164 Queens Road in Peckham is where Una would reside, staying with Dr Harold Moody and his family in a home that would be instrumental for Britain's black lives. As it was in this home that Dr Moody and his acquaintances would challenge, the racial barrier that black people were facing. And on the 13th of March, 1931, the League of Coloured Peoples was formed and their work had only just begun.
3: When the N-word was used by a broadcaster in 1940, at the beginning of the war, Dr Howard Moody, who was by then the leader of the League of Coloured Peoples, one of the first black-led organisations in this country, which he founded in 1931, he complained to the Director General and received an apology, which Dr Moody then published the apology in the League of Coloured People's newsletter. It's interesting, when I went to the BBC, written archives, they have no trace of this correspondence. You know, they have meticulous files, but that one seems to have escaped, but it obviously happened because it's there in the 1940 newsletter. But the BBC apologised straight away.
0: See, while some things have changed, others have not. 80 years later and the fight is still on. Though back then, all it took was one firm complaint to apologise. In 2020, 18,600 complained and it was editorially justified. By, 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 by. In fact, in June 1943, on a BBC discussion programme titled The Colour Bar, Dr Harold Moody was a guest along with actor Robert Adams and Aduke Alakija, the Nigerian lawyer. In the programme, the guests highlighted the racial prejudice they experienced But it was considered probably too much for the people of Britain, so the programme never aired. But BBC radio controller G.R. Barnes did regret his decision, which denied the opportunity for the public to hear black people discussing racism in Britain.
3: It was one of those occasions where the BBC did panic and think, no, this isn't the right time, this isn't what we want to be doing. But yes, there were problems. I mean, that was a bit too real. I mean, having singers and composers and, you know, musicians on... The radio is one thing to actually, and and drama as well, during the war, it was another thing to kind of tackle racism. So there would have been areas that the BBC felt uncomfortable with. But, uh, you know, but to their credit, they did try to do the programme. They didn't, like, dismiss it before it was even made. They did make the programme, but then withdrew their support.
0: Now we revisit the story of Una, whose life was very influential she came over to the UK and gave a platform to Caribbean writers whom she saw had potential. She was the BBC's first black woman radio producer and presenter from April 1940 to December 1945. We're all ready for you, Miss Marson. Thank you, Tommy. Hello, West Indies. This is Una Martin calling you from London. From Empire at War to Calling the West Indies, she gave the opportunity for black men and women fighting for this country to broadcast messages home to their loved ones and families. It
1: was called Calling the West Indies, and this was during the, the sort of tail end of the, of the war effort. And the program she uh, worked on and uh, devised, and the Big uh, was one where West Indian servicemen in London would send greetings home. Uh, to relatives in the Caribbean.
0: Tonight, we're having a special party, a party that's being filmed. Instead of our usual greetings, I'm going to ask some of these West Indians here to tell you something about our work in this country. First of all, here are pilot officer Ulrich Cross and aircraft woman Wendy Ince. The show was a real stopper with listeners in the Caribbean in front of the radios they would gather to hear from their families and also some celebrities who had broken through like Ken Snakeship Johnson and Leary Constantine, too. This is Una Boston introducing West Indians in Britain. First of all, here is Leary Constantine, the world-famous cricketer.
1: And then she decided to expand it, and she started inviting her listeners in the region, in the Caribbean, as well as some of these uh, military men sending greetings, uh, to, to bring in items... Uh, that interested them, literary items, and so she started reading poems on the programme. And that evolved, uh, given her vision and her work, that evolved into Caribbean Voices. And slowly but surely, she fashioned it into what would then become, with with Henry Swansea taking over, a bona fide uh, literary programme.
0: The programme then developed into Caribbean Voices because, you see, black writers' writing wasn't allowed to roam free. The British curriculum was very white, and that's how colonialism forced it to be. And it still is today, despite the efforts of many.
2: Calling the West Indies, and um, which turned into Caribbean Voices, is that even though, though the programme was recorded here, everything was done here, it wasn't aired in the UK. It literally went back on out on the World Service. So there is still a way where England controls or, you know, it has some kind of control over it. Even though when you figure out the people working for it, you know that they're Caribbean people, some of them. But there's a way where in England still filters or controls what is read, the literature, because it has to come to England and then be beamed back to the Caribbean. And it just wasn't happen, happening there, you know.
0: Caribbean Voices ran from the 11th of March 1943. It ran for 15 years until 1958, but it was only a short period of time that Una stayed. When it
1: began, it, you, when you look at the early submissions, a, a lot of it is, is kind of mimicking, mimicking um, you know, Al, Al, Alfred Laura Tennyson, you know, basically what you would expect from the, 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 the influence of colonialism many of the early writers were those who came from the middle classes and had a particular view of what constituted literature and so a lot of the early stuff was mimicry or or, uh, as people I think like Swansea said you know prettily sweet poems and, and but then you started to see Aspiring writers, and a number of them, and that's the an interesting thing, coming out of the working class. But having, a, as Derek Walker <laughs> calls it, a sound colonial education. So people like Lamming and Selvon coming out of relatively humble beginnings, but having a sound education. And people like them began to submit. submit, submit,
0: submit. It ran for 14 years until 1958, but it was only a short period of time that Eunice stayed. The interesting thing is that um, Yuna left. So Yuna was the first
2: producer and she left the program. Once she left, the position went to Henry Swansea, who is a a white man. You know, he's a a British person. Um, I think, you know, he very few times went to the Caribbean and he became this sort of patron and this bridge that everyone had to cross through. And the funny thing is he grapples with it. You know, if you read Henry Swansea's diary and his work, he actually thinks about it, you know, Not, and I suppose it's a time where, like, what was he going to do, give the job to a black, per- like, he wasn't going to do that, right? Even though there were people working under him who were capable and competent enough, but there's still a way, and I think it was just the way, you know, it was the way at the time, and this is why coming down a few, uh, maybe a decade, a few decades later, the writers actually said, no, we're not, you know, we, we don't want it this way. So it changed, changed, changed,
0: changed. A black change, woman in Britain change, change. can't surely have this influence and power, and this hostility Prejudice, jealousy perhaps drove Yuna away. Then her position gets taken over by Mr Henry Swansea. There's
2: also probably a mental health thing because Yuna left and went to Jamaica and had a a, a nervous breakdown, right? And so Yuna is also somebody that, in a way, has been buried. And it's this research in the past maybe two decades is no, we all know about Yuna Marston and the same way we all know about Claudia Jones now. but. Two, three decades ago, these weren't names, you know, and I think that's just one thing about history, too. You always pick up the man names, So I think there was a bit of, like, sexism involved and probably stigma around mental health, you know, for, for the women, at least, for the women. I definitely think that the stigma around mental health and, and Una's breakdown probably had something to do with it.
0: So many Caribbean voices appeared, from Braithwaite to Walcott and Dear Miss Lou. Louise Bennett, also known as Miss Lou, was a regular on the programme, according to the BBC Written Archives. She could be heard reciting her poems as well as singing, with titles like Werem There and Bands Killin. She didn't shy away from Jamaican patois. She helped the island dialect stand firm on its own. She gave it some fire, adding flavour to satire. She used it with pride. She used it with conviction, across her folk songs, poems and fiction.
1: Well, well Louise Bennett had by that time already established herself um, in Jamaica and she was in England uh, for a period. So I think the difference with somebody like Louise Bennett was that she was already not representative of what the circumstance that one might think of the typical woman working class or middle class at that time.
0: Louise Bennett is a cultural icon who deserves much love and appreciation. She was given a platform on the BBC's colonial service station. In 1950, in a colonial service transmission, dear Miss Bennett knows what she wants. She doesn't need any permission. When speaking to Mr Henry Swansea, who asks her if she wants to read one of her poems to start off the show, dear Miss Lou stands firm and simply replies no. No, 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 no. Whilst Mr Henry Swansea was in charge, what about the people on the ground? You know, the ones in the Caribbean who were helping with the programme sound? Henry Swansea actually has a conduit did his job,
2: you know? But there's so many stories that lead off of what Swan- was Swansea really doing the work? Because his correspondents in the Caribbean, um, the Lindos, they were the one who got everything to send to Henry anyway. The Lindos, Gladys and
0: Cedric, have an interesting story.
2: There's another PhD associated with my project, and her research is all about finding, like, actually, Mr. Linda didn't do anything. It was Grace Linda, the wife, right? She was the one that was basically making what happened in Britain, uh, what was happening in the BBC offices. She was the one doing the work.
0: See, the story's full of pseudonyms, speculation, around who was actually corresponding a
2: sub
1: editor was appointed in Jamaica Cedric Lindo was his name and uh, he was he was married uh, his wife uh, wife's name is Gladys Gladys Lindo and in an interesting um, uh, situation her name appears on the scripts so that you see Henry Swansea communicating with Gladys Lindo Gladys Lindo communicating with Henry Swansea and on the on the paper it's represented as though Gladys Lindo was this uh, sub-editor, this intermediary. Now, the intermediary, the, the idea was that people in, in the other territories, less of Antilles, Barbados, I mean, all these other territories where, where the program was heard, they were encouraged to submit their work to Lindo he would vet it and then he would send on to London what he thought was the, the, the best under the guise of this being uh, Gladys Lindo. And, and I know for a while there was some concern about that, but th- there are two things in my research that confirmed for me that it was Lindo and he was using uh, his, his wife's name. One was that he had, his substantive
3: job at the time was with um, a US company, company, um, a U.S. fruit company in Jamaica. And he was concerned that if he used his name,
1: that somehow it might might have been misconstrued by his substantive employer, that he was either working two jobs or not giving his full attention. And whether it was justified or not, that was his fare. And so he had his wife sign off on, on you know, all of the official material. He even used a pseudonym. So even when he would sometimes do reviews of texts, like he reviewed uh, Lamming's uh, In the Castle of My Skin, and he used a pseudonym Eric so, so, so you So you get this layering behind it's Gladys Lindo and then it's Eric Codling but it's all um, Cedric Lindo.
0: This is why research uncovering these hidden stories is so important. Otherwise we wouldn't get the opportunity to know these intermediaries like Cedric and Gladys Lindo.
1: In an interview uh, with Swansea, I confirmed this with Swansea, Swansea said, yes, it was Cedric, but Gladys used her name and he would write his letters, dear Aunt Gladys. And then I also interviewed, and this was years ago, uh, Wycliffe Bennett, the Jamaican who was head of the Poetry League in, in Jamaica and also head of the international, the, the Jamaican section of the Penn Club in Jamaica. And in a telephone interview, he also, uh, because he was not only involved in the literature himself, but he was close friends with... The Lindos and he also confirmed to me in an interview that it was Cedric Lindo um, and he used the name Gladys and in fact it was uh, Whitecliffe Bennett who in the interview indicated to me why this was done because he said Cedric was concerned about his employer finding out and so he didn't want his name to appear.
0: Zakia's research is shedding a light on this history. She's also questioning why. How and who comes to tell these stories?
2: There are a lot of issues why we don't hear these stories. And again, this is, I've realised, is the central theme of what my PhD will be is about memory and memorialization and what is like a, a, a collective memory because this is a history that we all have accepted and tell each other, right, until we dig around and find other histories. So, one, I think it's, like, just convenient to just take what a history book says without thinking any deeper of it. And because... We kind of always think that we need, uh, you know, possibly a white patron, a white person to do. So, you know, I think it's easy to accept that. So I think memory and, and like how we make a canon, it's the thing that you can hear how excited I am. Because once I hit up on this in my, my research, I was like, yo, this is a thing. Every single story that we're told, we're, we only remember it because of who the narrator was, who, who told us the stories, why we remember it. But you probably have, like, this is the story, and you probably have stories on the fringes of ev- all the other things that were happening. So it's really interesting to me. And I think even the story that me and you will tell right now, there are probably others around, you know? You know, you know, you know, you know, you know,
0: you know. The West Indies weren't the only ones calling. There was also calling West Africa and East Africa. But there's one person in particular who deserves recognition. He goes by the name of Akiwande Oliwale Babatunde Sayinka, a writer. A poet, a playwright, an essayist. See, Professor Wale Soyinka was prominent on BBC radio throughout the 1950s. Between 1955 and 1959, he contributed more than 30 pieces to the BBC's domestic service and overseas. Wole worked on calling Nigeria the BBC literary programme that acted as an intermediary between the colonial perceptions of what was deemed quality and what they thought was inferior. See, Caribbean voices and West African voices together generated thousands of literary pieces that help us to understand the decolonisation feeling. From late colonial to early post-colonial West Indian and West African writing, together they helped give context to what was happening, just as the British Empire was beginning to start falling. falling. Now we move on to the 1970s, when black people in Britain wanted something on the radio that was representative. Something that connected them to their West African and Caribbean roots overseas. Something truly fitting, but mostly represented being black in Britain. Pressure from the black communities in Britain forced the BBC to make a change. A black British radio programme is what they would make. Alex Pascal and his wife Joyce are a couple of pioneers who helped give black Brits a voice. A show called Black Londoners was then born broadcasting monthly from November
4: 1974 I started with Radio London on a November 20 2nd 1974, at that time, the BBC Radio London, the local station, had granted, we had asked for a program, the black community, and I, I was sort of headhunted through them, and then it took us about, what, a year to get there, that means we, we were doing it, preparing for it since 73, and then in September, in uh, November 1974, it went on air... Named Black Londoners, that was a name chosen. Very interesting name because it raised questions on both sides. And that period everybody used to talk about black people as coloured people and I used to say, which colour you mean?
0: It initially was given a small slot. Despite the doubts editors made about the programme, Alex Pascal turned it into a show that soon took off. Music, interviews, news, phone-ins plus debate a programme for and by London's black community that they would go on to highly rate. The programme was so powerful and played a significant role for the black London community, eventually moving from monthly, then to once a week. But it took two years for Alex to prove its significance and success. Alex was committed to the community, particularly during times of unrest. Picking up the pieces of the mainstream news, Alex Pascal on the front lines, conducting interviews. Another two years on, it would take for the show to become Daily in 1978, the first daily mainstream black radio show in British history, discussing political issues and directly engaging with the black London community.
4: It was once a month on a Friday with a repeat, even with the phone in, on the Sunday evening, and then by uh, 1976, it went once a week, And in 1978, May, it became the first Black daily radio program ever in British history.
0: The show ran for 14 years until 1988. It was groundbreaking, pioneering, made by us, for us, with interviews with Bob Marley and also Muhammad Ali. Ali, it's
4: a thrill to have you here with me in London. I would love to hear from you uh, all about your life and a nice little message to all the black people and other people here in London. Well, tell all the brothers and sisters, the black people, and all the friends and fans of all races and colors, that i like to tell you as much as I could about
0: me. About me black Londoners should be held in high regard, but instead, as you'll see throughout this series, The works of these pioneers are often disregarded. Legacies and significant cultural moments thrown to one side, or worse, in the bin. After Alex created a moment in history, an interview between Mighty Sparrow and Bob Marley, this was the first time the two artists met. But yet, when Alex came into work the next morning, he would find in the bin that cultural moments recording. Luckily for Alex, he has kept many of these recordings. He has created his own black audio and media archive, which you can find more about on a website called Good Vibes Online. So black people often have to constantly convince that their ideas are in safe hands and something audiences wouldn't want to miss. We have to do our best to keep changing the narrative, not just in the former West African and West Indian colonies, but here at home, in Britain too. Just
1: as we need to change the narrative and have been changing it in the colonies, well post the, the nationalist period to say, we need to pay attention to filiation and we need to pay attention to connections that understandably we sideline in the early days of that decolonization nationalist narrative. I think in a similar manner at home in the UK, it's, it's, it's useful. For that narrative to also in the UK include the kinds of work that was done out of the BBC but broadcast to the colonies.
0: This brings us to a close and it's the end of chapter two but stay tuned for chapter three as there's much more to this story. In the next episode, we enter the final part, where you'll hear more about the black pirate radio stations like LWR. And not just about the stations, but the black pioneers who paved the way, like Joe Douglas, who founded WNK. And Leroy Anderson and DJ Lane, ranking Miss P, and also Zach D. Let me also not forget about Dear Old Choice, 107.1 and 96.9. There is such a rich black broadcasting history in the UK, and it deserves recognition. And celebration and as we critically discuss the construction of certain narratives around black people in britain the institutions who control the mainstream narrative and continue to withhold should take responsibility and accountability for these missing parts of history it's not about being afraid to look back because of what we might find we need to do as much as we can to keep black people's work in britain and their stories alive i also want to give a voice to new black voices coming through Those who have a beautiful story that they want to
5: tell, too. We are Influential by Joseph Valentine. What is music? What is black music? Music is like breath in the body. Music is the breath and the artist is the body. Today we celebrate black music, breathed through black artists. Welcome to the UK, Ray Black, an artist who is renowned for her diverse UK black sound. The first black unsigned artist to win the BBC sound competition. She is the definition of the seed of talent growing into fruition. Ray Black, the artist from Catford embodying black excellence in these crucial times where people sell their souls and minds for musical fame that they try to find. Ray Black sings patience. Ray Black is a public figure who is unsigned. Showing black excellence is not hard to find. It's time to shift. It's time to shift from the power of words to the power of the instruments that speak with invisible verbs. Welcome to Africa. This is where the instruments say Ngoma, Ngoma, meaning to dance to the music you hear in the land where you feel the music in the hot African sand. Ngoma is not only a word but an African drum. It symbolizes celebration and authority under the African sun. Welcome to the Caribbean Rest in peace Mr Marley Singing about the looting by the people and the corruption in the army You saw the struggle yet wanted the peace You saw the bondage yet sung about release You saw burning and looting and wanted the fire to cease You believed in Christ and wanted to slay the oppressive beast It's time to bring it back home We are back in the UK. This is where I have one more artist who has a lot more to say. His name is Governor B, who merged the grime with the message of Christ. Crime is seemed to be a murderous genre, which is why when black youngers are full of ideas and good, they are stereotyped to this bloodshedding culture. <laughs> Governor B, born in the UK of a Ghanaian descent. His lyrics are about the purpose of which we are sent. Our history and stereotype pressures black to be a goon. This pressure becomes an action, resulting in black lives being lost too soon. Whether the life was taken by the police or by the goon. Governor B takes black music of grime and makes it politically relevant to our time. Governor B is a black artist who, like Ray Black, proves that black excellence isn't hard to find. Governor B takes this stereotype called grime and uses it as a banner, as a positive sign. Thus, renewing the black mind from conforming to the pressure set by the outside world so that they can be black excellence that they were always meant to be. Black music brings out the excellence that just needed a spark, birthing black doctors, entrepreneurs and politicians in the industry, thus making our mark. Black and green is our heritage. White, blue and red is our home. Let us come together as black people, as a team and help each other out. Our strength is in our quality. Our influence is in teams. Like Martin Luther King said, blackness has a dream.
0: In Safe Hands, The Voices of Black Britain has been written and produced by Aisha Taylor-Kamara with special sound curation and editing by DJ Knickknack. It sits alongside an online exhibition where you can hear more from the contributors in the series and explore some images and videos from the archive. Please visit www.thevoicesofblackbritain.weebly.com